Thomas on Red Radio. For the students, by the students. Broadcasting live 24-7. Good afternoon, everybody. It's just hit one past four here on Red Radio. Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to be with you. Um, I know I'm not in my usual slot. Today is um, normally now best bits from four to five. But we will be bringing that to you from five to six today. But um, I am very excited to be chatting to someone who has quintessentially defined the radio industry and um, has left a mark um, from rugby to radio to the pantomime. Um, he's been around and I'm so excited to have him join me in studio today. Mr. John Robbie, hello. Hi, it's great to be here on Red Radio. I'm highly honored. Thank you for joining us. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm 17 years old and um, you hosted the, 70, the, the 702 Breakfast Show for 17 years. So that's my, my entire life. I was born with you on 702 and I came into my teens with you on 702. My goodness me. It's, been, it's certainly been a long time. You're making me feel a little <laughs> bit old. And when you said I did uh, radio and rugby and pantomime, some people would say at times my rugby and my radio were like pantomime. Yes. But, uh, that's... That's tongue-in-cheek. It's lovely to be here. So, I mean, you, you hosted, I mean, obviously, as we've said, for 17 years on the 702 Breakfast Show. I mean, that, that's a while, especially in, in morning radio, where, where it's, it's prime time. I mean, how do you keep it fresh, and how do you keep a, a, a news bulletin, and I mean, a new show fresh for so long and, and, and interesting for so long? Well, luckily, in, in, in South Africa, um, for various reasons, there's, there's always plenty to talk about. Mm you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and it's extraordinary at times. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit other countries and listen to their radio, whether it was Britain, whether it was Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, etc. And you realize how trivial the things they were getting excited about often were. I mean, obviously, with the COVID situation now, the whole world is in a, is in a very, very serious state. But, but in South Africa, because of the past, because of the historical times through which we're living, there are always incredible things happening. Uh, there's so many good things, but obviously there are so many bad things as well. And, and people need information. They also need reassurance. And in this age of, of uh, social media, of fake news, so much rubbish being put out there, the internet, uh, I think that people, most people need a place where they can go to and know they're going to get honest news and honest opinion. And that's what I always try to do. And that's what 702 always tried and tries to do. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why we were reasonably successful. The hardest thing really was choosing what to leave out on a program rather than to put in. And that's rare in the world of radio, I can tell you. So... I mean, you you started um, your your career on seven oh two, joining uh, from from when you weren't playing rugby um, as a, as a sports commentator, and obviously you worked your way up into into the show. I mean, how was that whole experience of of working your app? You know, going from grave um, yard to to prime time morning. It was it was surreal, really, and and involved a huge amount of luck. Um, I, I I finished my 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 rugby, which was semi-professional in those days. It was supposed to be amateur, but we did, we did get some, some, some benefits, if I can put it that way. And because that had been my life up till then, really, I was totally, totally focused on rugby. Um, I had to sort of, at the age of 32, look around and find something that gave me a passion. I did have another job, but I wasn't really passionate about it. And luckily, uh, I was a listener to 702, and, and 
702 used to be on a medium wave signal. Um, I think it's 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 hot uh, hot one and I hot hot that hot station now has the signal or, or one of the other stations has it. Uh, LM radio, sorry, I beg your pardon. And and the signal was shocking. And five FM just started copying 702 with a marvelous signal. So 702 was in was in trouble. And they looked at ways to um, freshen it up. And from America, they'd realized that they often got sports personalities in to do guest shows. And I'd done a little bit of commentary on, on television when I was injured and on radio when I was injured on the SABC. And someone suggested me. And the fact I was a listener to 702, to John Burks and Stan Katz and, and all these legends of the, of the radio station. Uh, I was delighted to come in and I did it part time at first doing early morning sport. Then they offered me a job as full time sports editor, which I jumped at. And I did a little sports program on the afternoon. And um, this, this took off. I mean, can you believe it in those days? There was no phone-ins. People didn't do phone-ins to radio. We were the first to actually do phone-ins. People who'd been at the game, there were no cell phones. Yeah, because so that, that was quite radical for, 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 for the time. Oh, this was, this was unheard of. And, and radio was so censored and controlled in the old South Africa, which I'm sure you read about, your parents have told you about, that they almost didn't trust ordinary people to phone in. And, and so I got this. And, and coming from Ireland, I was used to banter and chat and argument and fun. And um, then, of course, when 702 went to a talk station, they were looking for people who could handle talk, callers, etc. I was, I suppose, maturing, getting more politically aware, realizing there was more to life to sport. And they gave me a graveyard shift, 10 o'clock till midnight. And uh, a week later, F.W. de Klerk stood up on the 2nd of February 2000, open parliament, and the world went mad. And I, by luck, was running this little platform where people of all backgrounds, races, whatever, could phone in and, and give their honest opinion. And it went through the roof. There was a lot of luck involved, I can tell you. Yeah, because essentially your career was defined. I mean, Stan Katz um, decided to move 702 from um, a rock station to, to talk. And then you were there. And essentially that, that, that defined your career at 702 and, and essentially the breakfast show for, for many years to come. Absolutely. I mean, uh, rumor has it, legend has it, that Stan Katz made that decision over a bottle of whiskey <laughs> with somebody else. But that's Stan, and that's what he did. And and I'm proud to say, looking back, that 702 had a, I, I think, a, a, a real role in getting the country ready for what was a massive transformation. And I know a lot of people are very negative at the moment, but you know, have a look at at, at, at Syria or have a look at, at Mogadishu or uh, some of the places in the world where there are dreadful civil wars. And that seriously is what South Africa could have been. So mm -hmm. for all the problems we have at the moment, we've come a long way and 702, I think, looking back, had a, had a role to play in getting people and, and helping them through the transition. Yeah, I'm proud of that. And, and, I, and I must say, I mean, for for you being being in the public eye for so long, I mean, how do you deal with having, I mean, death threats to be having a whole lot of negative things flying at you from all directions? I was listening to um, a, 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 an an interview where where you said you got this horrible letter and it was signed from a concerned Christian. Um, I mean, it, it was <laughs> I that? Still, I still have it. I, I I still have it somewhere, and it was this person who dreamed of pouring petrol over me and setting me 
a light and hearing me scream a horrible death and I was a communist and this, that and the other. And as you say, it was signed a concerned Christian, which uh, I think the irony was lost on the on the writer. Looking back, it was very, very scary. And, and Eugene de Kock, the, the, the apartheid assassin, um, I met him once before he came out of jail. Uh, I was I was able to meet him because he was doing work with the uh, prisons and the TRC trying to find bodies of people that he had murdered uh, over the years. He went to jail for 20 years and I met him and he told me that in the early 90s he was told by the police to assassinate me and he was told to assassinate me using a crossbow to send a message, which, you know, is scary because I was a relatively young married man. My kids were young, but I think in a way there was this feeling and, and, and a I still harbor a lot of guilt from coming over here in the old days and playing rugby. I came on rugby tours here while, you know, people were, were, were being oppressed in this country, while there was racial discrimination, while there were dreadful things going on. And I came and played rugby. But as I said at the beginning, I was totally obsessed with rugby. That was my life. But I have to live with that. And I think looking back on it, that, that in a funny way, to be thrust into this position where you could make a real contribution, where you could do something to help to ease people who are frightened from, from, from different communities in. And I think I was driven by this, this, this feeling that here was this once in a lifetime chance. If the country could negotiate a settlement and suddenly Madiba came out of jail, people wanted to talk, F.W. Clerk was there for whatever reason was receptive, whether it was the economy or a, a general conversion, I, and I think a lot of other people realized there was this one chance. And in a funny way, I think that allowed me internally to atone for what I'd done. Here was a chance to actually make a difference and do something that was right rather than that was wrong. And, you know, I'm sounding like I was sort of deeply analyzing it at the time. I wasn't. I think maybe fate had something to do with it. And, and so as a result, when these threats came in, I think I also looked at other people, people like Madiba, Walter, who'd been in jail for, you know, 20 something years in those days for just trying to bring about something. So therefore, what was a few death threats? And also at the time, I, I, I thought that people wouldn't send you a death threat if they were going to do anything. They, they'd bump you off. Uh, nowadays, I look back and realize that I was probably a bit naive. And of course, my, my, my wife, Jenny, and my kids, they suffered a lot because people would abuse them. People would at school make you know, jokes about, about them and, and threaten their dad and so on. But, but looking back, it, 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 it was all worthwhile. And in a funny sort of way, looking back, it almost seems like a dream. As I said, sometimes it's, it's almost, almost surreal. And it's also surreal how quickly times passed because here I am retired from radio talking to you, a budding young radio personality. <laughs> um, we're in conversation with John Robbie, former 702 um, breakfast presenter. We are getting your questions through. Um, someone has come in and said, hi, John, I've been listening to you since 2005. And I was wondering, how has it been off air? How's retirement been since, uh, since, since 702? It's been incredible. It's like three years now, and I'm involved in a couple of little enterprises, I call them. But luckily, uh, I also got involved with a, with a, a company that, that uh, was a guy called Lionel Carp on 702. I mean, like a lot of sports people and media people, my financial sit situation, my organization was a total shambles. I mean, I was laughing about it yesterday with a, a very well-known businessman. I had everything in a, in a, in a shoebox with invoices, and it was a shambles. 
shambles and I had no planning or anything. And Lionel Karp, who worked for 702, he sorted my finances out, my pension fund, stuff that youngsters will find very boring, but I promise you it's very, very important. And I got involved with a company called Cap, uh, um, called well, I won't mention the name of the of of the the company. And and what they did was they they looked after me, so I was able to retire quite early at at sixty one. You know, a few years before my time, and I've been involved in a couple of other little enterprises that have been fun, and I've been playing a bit of golf, and I've I've got myself very fit again. I'm the same weight I was when I was seventeen, which is which is kind of nice. And, and generally relaxed a little bit and, and taking it easy. And, and uh, yeah, but I miss radio at times, but don't miss getting up at 2.15 in the morning, I can tell you. I was just going to ask you, I mean, 2.15, I mean, that, that, that's intense. You say your dog still wakes up. Does your dog still wake up at 2.15? Well, sadly, my dog has passed on. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's so sad. Our Sorry. dog. But, but uh, yeah, for a while I used to and then used to just go, oh, my goodness, this is wonderful. And now I've discovered that I'm incredibly lazy. I can sleep quite late. <laughs> Uh, in, in the morning and and it was funny I said it to somebody the other day uh, I said I've discovered I'm actually quite a lazy person and he said well how can you say you're lazy when for 17 years you got up at this ridiculous ridiculous hour and it was and it was also very unhealthy I mean I'm I, I think I'm very very healthy now but gee for so many years I was just no energy and and you know the doctors will tell you it, it is unhealthy uh, and it was but preparation is the key to to good performance on radio and and I, I met a guy called Alan Jones, who was the sort of a legend of Australian radio, talk radio. Very, very controversial guy. But in terms of, of discipline and professionalism, I learned so much from him. And he used to get into work at four o'clock. Mm. So I said, in my own naive Irish way, I said, well, if he's the best and he gets in at four o'clock, I'm going to get in at three o'clock. <laughs> so that's what I did. I got in at three o'clock for a six o'clock show, three hours flat out preparation. And of course, once I built that up as my routine, I couldn't then go back and shorten it or, yeah. or do it because I would have felt so bad. You've so, raised the bar the so high. Way, it went well, yeah. And also, I think fear of failure and nerves and all sorts of things had something to do with it. Uh, you know, they say when you lose the nerves, you know, 10 seconds, 9 seconds, 8 seconds before that red light goes on, on air then it's time to go. And I, I actually got more nervous as I went through it. But uh, yeah, I think, I think that, that, that the preparation was, was absolutely key. And I've enjoyed doing other things now. I Times miss being on the radio. It's lovely to have a platform to put views across and to help people. And there's a lot of people who need helping. But, you know, all things come to an end and you have to hand on the, 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 the baton. And, and that's what I've done in, a, in a, I think, a very, very professional way. And 702 are magnificent to me. And yeah, I'm happy looking back. So I, I see you're on Twitter. Uh, do you enjoy Twitter? Do you find it? I mean, for me, I find it a bit toxic and a bit scary. Um, is, is, that your, is that kind of your, your social media spot? I hate Twitter with a passion <laughs> undying. I think it is one of the parts of the spawn of the devil. I think what I don't know what it is about Twitter that just brings out the worst in almost mm. everybody. You know, I can I can say to you, gee, that's a nice studio you've got because I'm looking at you, you know, on the, on the video here and someone I can tweet that and someone will come three tweets later. It's a racist, sexist, bigoted, you know, a conversation. It, it, it's terrible. 
What happened was, though, I, I, I tweeted on 702, or my, my um, Alistair Teeling Smith, who is the, the program director, he used to listen to the program and tweet information. I never put anything for controversy's sake or anything like that. You know, on the John Robbie show, the Minister of Finance said the following, and we put it out. And when I retired, amazingly, I had 400,000 something followers. And my kids, who are much more savvy about this sort of stuff than I am, said, you've got to take this with you, Dad. You never know what it what it will mean. And 702 are great. And said, as long as I took the 702, you know, handle or whatever you call it, Monaco, name off it, I could keep it. And now it's grown to 482,000 or something. So every so often when something just grabs me, I'll just put it up. Something that's nice, something that might be of interest. For example, I don't know if you've seen on Netflix this incredible documentary about the octopus. I, I, I saw you tweet it. Teacher. I watched this thing and it is, it's like totally, utterly unique. It is mind-blowing and it's a South African thing. It's gone all over the world. But I thought that's the sort of thing that a lot of people would like. Something politically comes up that I want to make just a little comment about, I'll do it there. Without saying, look, I'm fully involved. I don't want to have a great conversation, but I'm still out here and I'm still an observer. So that's what I do. And as I say, it's grown and it's it's a necessary evil. It's out there and it's a necessary evil, but it's so sad that it's abused in, 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 in so many ways. What started off as such a wonderful idea, I think, has been abused and and yeah, that's a pity, but it is what it is. Yeah, because I mean, I think in, in a student's aspect, I mean, Twitter can literally define your life. I mean, we've seen over the past few months, um, especially in recent political times, how kids have been cancelled and kids have been completely and utterly uh, cut off and, and, and in a sense ruined their reputation Um rightfully or wrongfully so i mean cancel culture in a sense is very very dangerous and, and twitter is is promoting that it is and, and it's one of these terror i mean it's the old thing you know where do you draw the line between hate speech and freedom of speech you mm -hmm. know and of course the the you know it's like so many things that it's it it is in in its in its simplicity and its essence is the most unbelievable example of freedom of speech and you look at things like the arab revolt that took place in the in the, the, the you know the arab countries and so on this was led by social media and it, it did a fantastic job and as a way of passing information on it's wonderful but obviously there's a dark side of it uh, as well and i think the world is still learning how to police it how to manage ma manage it and of course, if everybody was as perfect as you and I are, then uh, it would be wonderful. But as we know, that's 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 not the case. And and I'll certainly follow its development uh, with a lot of interest. Mm. So I think something that, that that not many people. I mean, you say Clinton has told my um told uh, told Clinton to shut up, and he's told you to shut up. <laughs> oh, gee, you've done your research. Ten out of ten. Um, yeah, I, I often say, because I do quite a lot of public speaking and speaking at dinners yeah. and uh, corporate events and MC work and so on. And I love to always say that, that, that uh, 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 Nelson Mandela told two people in public to shut up. Yeah. And one was Bill Clinton, when Bill Clinton, uh, who was a great supporter of, of Mandela, but Bill Clinton was very angry when the ANC supported Cuba and Fidel Castro, you know, against the sanctions America placed on it. And uh, he told uh, Bill Clinton to shut up and jump in the river. And <laughs> I was very lucky enough at, a, at an event to be at a, 
a media event in 1995 when Nelson Mandela was president and they held a huge event for the media. And there were about 40 tables and it was all SABC, you know, the, the national state media. And little old 702 and then Mnet said, look, we're also media. Could we come along as well? So they gave us each a table tucked away in the corner. And very cheekily, I took the invitation and wrote a little message and asked one of the waiters, would he give it to Madiba? And I said, will you come and join us? We're at the far table. We'd like to speak to you as well. And I think I put this as a, not a long walk, you know, joke, joke, joke. <laughs> Redistribution of self. A couple of weak jokes, respectfully <laughs> yours. And Nelson Mandela came over and he laughed and he looked up and we all cheered. And he came and sat with us for an hour or over an hour. And um, you probably were too young to meet the great man. And he was one of the greatest men that ever lived. And he had this amazing ability, Nelson Mandela. When you met him, first of all, he was so big. His pictures do not give justice to the size of the man. They say mm -hmm. when you met Muhammad Ali, it was the same. For some reason in his pictures, he didn't look as big as when you met him. He was a mm -hmm. big, big man. And also he had this aura about mm -hmm. him because imagine. he was the most famous human being on the world, in the world and probably the most loved. So most people, even incredibly educated or wealthy or whatever, famous, when they met Nelson Mandela, they got tongue-tied tongue and they would be gibbering like idiots. And everyone at the table was in that sort of, form no one knew what to say to this great man sitting with us so mm. i said well i'm not going to waste the opportunity so i said uh, mr president could you answer a question please almost like i was on the radio and at the time there was a lot of um uh, anger between the anc and the ifp and there was a lot of terrible things going on and uh, chief Butalezi, of course was the leader and mandela hadn't met Butalezi pointedly since he got out of jail. So I said, how come you can meet the old apartheid leaders? You had tea with Betsy Vervut, and yet you won't meet Chief Minister, Chief Butalezi. And oh, hang on now. Oh, let me, oh, let me tell you. You see, and he was like this. And of course, it used to be this banter on the radio. I'm saying, but hang on a second now. What about? He yeah. says, no, you, shut up. <laughs> table went like this. And then he smiled. He says, you are not on the radio now. <laughs> That's one of my proudest, proudest posts. Uh, yeah, I can imagine. Um, so, I mean, when, when, when I look at rugby to radio, I mean, I think completely polarized um, different industries. I mean, are they that polarized? Do you think your rugby career shaped, in a sense, your radio career? Okay, so... Are we, are we back? Hello, sorry. Like somebody else phoned and for some reason it came in there. <laughs> That's cool. I, did, I did get your question. And funnily enough, a lot of people say that. How did you go from one, you know, from, from rugby to radio? Totally different. It's probably getting another call. <laughs> you're popular. Sorry, you're popular. <laughs> yeah, popular. Probably saying I'm listening to you. Um, you know, when, when you actually think about it, there is a massive similarity. If you think about it, uh, although one is not one is not physical, obviously rugby is physical, but the higher up you go, believe it or not, it's more it's more cerebral. Mm -hmm. And and sorry, my watch keeps banging against the table. But 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 if you think about it, rugby is about huge preparation, and then it's about performance, and then it's about result and feedback. And in a funny way, that's why a lot of sports people battle when they give up their passion at the age of 35 or whatever they suddenly have to find something and it was um i think it was um who was it It was one of the rugby players uh, said to me he said it's not difficult finding a job but finding a job that turns you on when you've run out in front of eighty thousand people in a rugby world cup final is very very difficult and this is what what i had found what the heck am i going to do when i've been so 
passionate about rugby. Then I got into radio and loved it because there's that element of performance, a lot of preparation. You get feedback in terms of numbers, people who are listening to you. And, and you know, there's a result. How many people are you? The book comes out every, every couple of months, etc. So in a funny way, I was able to take my personality, which I'd expressed through rugby and satisfied through rugby, and then was able to do something very, very similar with radio. So in a funny, funny sort of way, they were absolutely perfect for one another. And to this day, I mean, I, I can't say how grateful and lucky I was to find that, that, that match of careers. And as a result, I've loved my work for the last, uh, what, 40-something years. Brilliant. Um, so we're in conversation with John Ruby. Um, we are getting your questions. I mean, we're having streams and streams of just, I love you, John, like you, you define, I mean, my gran actually. Oh, sent... you lie like a cheap carpet. You lie like a cheap carpet. I promise you. I promise tell you. Tell me the nasty ones. Tell I... me the nasty I'm pulling it. <laughs> pulling it. I will tell you my grand's one. She said to me, um, please tell John he was an inspiration to me and so many. Um, you know, I mean, for so many people, I mean, there's just, I mean, thank you, John Robbie. I listen to you every single morning. John, you are incredible. Thank you for everything. John, I love you. John, hello. hello. <laughs> so, uh, oh, I'm, I'm embarrassed. The, the nicest thing is that, that when I started, a lot of people didn't like me. And, and a lot of particularly white people, maybe more conservative people, hated me. The same people who sent that horrible letter to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the death threats and, and the insults, and there are a lot of them and, and so on. And now so many people in a shopping center or having a drink or some meal will come up to you and say, hey, John, by the way, hell, I didn't used to like you. But, you know, looking back, you actually prepared me for what was happening. You knew, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And even once at a golf club, at Irene Golf Club, I was doing a function on a Sunday at a golf day, and some people wanted to kill me. They were members of the, of the um, uh, AWB, right-wing group, and they actually wanted to be. They, they said to Sun International, if John Robbie gives out the prizes, we're going to kill him. And you know, so at a golf day on a Sunday Jeez. afternoon, absolutely bizarre. And it was very scary. My wife, Jenny, was with me at the time. And, and it was a nasty, nasty situation. People had moved off to the function. And I, I, we were on our own at the tables outside with this group of people. And they were huge. It was a serious, serious thing. And then about a couple of years ago, the chairman of Irene said, look, they've got a member who says he was one of those guys. And he's so embarrassed about it. And looking back, he is so, I said, I'd love to meet the guy. I'd love to shake his hand and have a beer with him. He says, no, he's too embarrassed. But it's kind of nice now that an awful lot of people from all sorts of backgrounds say, and this is what I'm getting at. I mean, I'm not saying 702 uh, freedom fighters, you know, risking lives on the front uh, uh, line. But what we did was we, we took a stand for, for truth, for democracy, and for honesty, I think. And we stuck by it. Yeah. And I think a lot of people now said, hang on a second, they're, they're, we can get through this when people were had, had no hope at all. And that's why I think 702 has got a huge role to play today because mm -hmm. there's an awful lot of pessimism about it. A lot of people are very down, are thinking of leaving the country or leaving the country. And I think by, by getting to the bottom of things and, and setting a balance, a balance of where we are, what's possible, where we're going, holding people to account, interpreting things. I think there's a similar role to play going forward. But uh, yeah, even as I'm talking, you're getting some goosebumps. Yeah. 
I, I had a grade, a prep school teacher um, a, a, about two days ago when, when we announced we were interviewing you. And she said, Tom, do you remember you used to, when, when, we, when you didn't understand something, because I listened to you in the car on the way to school. And, and she said, and I, I would look up at the teacher and just try and explain something to me. And I wasn't getting it. And I'd say, man, cut the slush. I don't get it. I don't get what you're <laughs> saying. <laughs> so, I mean, these, these, these lines, tell them I sent you. I mean, those, those are like in, oh. in, in today's language and, 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 and talk. You Always know? good on a Friday. Always yes. good on a Friday. Thank, thank goodness it's Friday. That was another one. <laughs> will you stop saying that? TGIF, thank goodness it's Friday. And I said, I will stop saying that when these crooks have been held to account. So I think if I was on the radio, I'd still be saying, thank goodness it's Friday. Yes. So, I mean, we've got a, a, about another two minutes with you. I, I just wanted to ask, what's, what's, your, what's your playlist? What, what, is, what does John listen to over the weekend? And I, I, funny enough, I listen to a lot of Irish music, okay. uh, a lot of traditional Irish music and Irish rock music as well. Uh, I've discovered something called Spotify, which I never thought I'd be able to, to work, and I do that. Uh, I'm a great reggae fan. Bob Marley and the Wailers are my absolute favorite music. I hate hip-hop music and modern music. I just don't get it. I'm afraid <laughs> rap music, I don't get it. In fact, on the radio, I used to refer to it as joke. I used to say, what's this C-rap that people are talking about? C-rap, crap. You know, C-rap. C-rap. <laughs> what's a C-rap? And, you know, this was my little joke you know, that I'd throw out that probably be slaughtered for it uh, for it today. <laughs> today and a lot of the old the old music you know i love 60s 70s music we mm. all we all love the era that we were in so you know the 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 uh, oh, i mean so much so many groups are out the beatles etc uh, rolling stones stuff like that absolutely love it but i love music i just yeah. unfortunately can't play a note or sing a note <laughs> so i mean uh, part parting words to any young budding radio presenter that wants to get into the industry what would be your top tip my top tip would be get your toe in the door everyone says i want to be on radio mandy wiener one of our greatest journalists at the moment got into 702 by becoming the traffic reporter's assistant assistant she got in doing that what must have been the most banal lowly paid job just to get into 702 when she got in 702 she sat on katie katapodis the news editor's door and said i want to do news i want to do news i'm great i'm fabulous I, in the Christmas holidays, just to shut her up, they gave her, go and find out about this water shortage down in Houghton. Yeah. And she went down there on this, you know, absolutely uh, basic uh, job assignment. And she got mugged, oh, got wow. mugged by a mugger. And she interviewed the mugger <laughs> while she got mugged and came back with an interview on a mugger. What a story. And, and she got in. And this is what it is. Get your toe in the door. Yeah. Find out. Out what you can do there's so many things in radio there's sales there's there's marketing there's the technical side there's the producing side there's the call screening side so many things but once you're in you can prove yourself and learn about it and and you know radio is about um it's about i suppose being being unique and and being yourself but also like all other professions there's best practice there's best practice things you do how you throw forward you prepare mm -hmm. you read advertisements you you do all these sort of technical things and once you get that format as dan katz used to say and so many people don't get that the format sets you free Mm. You've got the best practice of how to run a radio show with your team. The producers and call screeners are, are, are absolutely vital in, in, in talk radio. And, and once you obey the best rules in between that, you can be yourself to your heart's content. And, uh, and the other thing I'd say is that, that you know, anyone can do 
uh, a show on a huge day, you know, 9-11, Nelson Mandela coming out of jail, what a, you know, COVID lockdown. Gee, everybody wants to hear radio. But on the day when nothing is happening, the day when it's absolutely quiet, you've got to work hard to find things, issues, events, people. So people listening think, gee, it's the same show. It's the same show. In other words, your average is right up there all along. And that's what you, that, that's the best piece of advice I would give. And, and also to enjoy it, to absolutely enjoy it as I did. We originally, when I said, no, John Robbie's coming, um, my sign the wall um, next to our new studio that's getting built. So we'd love to invite you back I to sign our wall. <laughs> and can, can I just say to you, A, I'm knocked out with your whole operation there. Thank you. We didn't have that at school. When I was at school, I can tell you. And, and also to you, your preparation has been first class. The way you and your team have handled things is, is very, very good. And I suspect... One day, someone from 702 might might be phoning you. <laughs> Thank you, John Ravi. Um, now we've got news with Danny Abra.